Welcome, everyone. I am your host, Stephen Blush, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Art of the Interview podcast powered by Blush Media. Today is your time to get schooled, which is why we call this Rock History 101 with classic interviews from my storage bins of cassette tapes. This episode is in tribute to our late great friend Jimmy Webb of the East Village stores Trash and Vaudeville and I Need More. I Need More, of course, is a song by Iggy Pop, so we decided to run one of my earliest interviews with Iggy Pop from 1988 for the cover of My Seconds magazine. Iggy had just released a great song called Cold Metal, and he was so supportive of my work back then, so we really connected in this 45-minute phone conversation. The interview starts out with talk of his work with horror director Sam Raimi, and then goes into a deep discussion of his career and legacy. So without further ado, here is the king of punk, Iggy Pop, on The Art of the Interview, powered by Blush Media, Rock History 101. Hello? Is that Steve? Yeah, you got him. Hi, it's Iggy. Hi, Iggy. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Good. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Okay, hold on for a second, all right? Let me get this machine right. Yeah. Yeah, you sound right now. Hello? Wait one second. Say something again. Uh, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Okay, great. We got it. So, hey, are you familiar with my magazine? Yeah, I like your magazine. I read some good interviews in there. Great. I read a good one uh, with Sam Raimi. Uh-huh, right, exactly. I'm working with him right now. Really? Yeah, yeah. I tracked him down. I I saw Evil Dead 1 and 2, and I flipped out. I just freaked because they were so good. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, to me, they're not even like horror movies, really. They don't, they don't feel the same to me as like just a sort of a grim, scary movie. They're more like action pictures or something. Like yeah. And they're humorous, too. And they're psychological, like in the in Evil Dead 2, when the whole room starts laughing at the guy. Exactly. The moose is laughing at him, and the books are laughing at him. It's like the world is laughing at this guy. I just love that. And uh, anyway, I tracked him down and uh, called him up and asked him, you know, if he'd be interested to work. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he was kind of demure at first, but I sent him I sent him some stuff I'd done, and he called me back. He was really excited, like, you'd be perfect, you know. <laughs> another cool thing about him is he's got like a really cool sense of humor about horror too you know that, that's what I like yeah that's what I like to the farewell to arms when the guy cuts his arm off <laughs> you know and all that so he's got he's doing an Evil Dead 3 for uh, De Laurentiis do you know De Laurentiis yeah, sure and he's doing uh, something called Dark Man for Universal now wow and he writes this stuff this is really great he he writes this stuff and he started the writing on my video too with his who's an MD from Youngstown, Ohio. Wow. He's, a, he's in residence at a hospital there, and he takes he takes breaks, like, I don't know, monthly or bi-monthly, and comes out here for like a, up to a week at a time, 
and sits and writes these dismemberment <laughs> psychological thrillers with Sam. Wow. It's great. They sit at a computer and they write this stuff together. That's how they did me. They they put my uh, they they use a computer uh, like a you know it's nothing nothing real arcane that anybody can't understand. They just use it like a word processor, and it's convenient because they can they can write a bunch of ideas on that and then and then crash and get up the next day and look at them and whatever they don't like they can just take out a computer or if they want to add something they can just make some extra space and punch it in you know. Uh huh. So it's a, and when they want to when they want to take it away and look at it on paper, they can print it out. That's really incredible. That's how they worked on me. It's sort of <laughs> I sat between the two of them, and and the the three of us just started. It was like it was like being in a magnetic field or something. They had, they had me. Uh, it was for the song Cold Metal. Right. And they had me uh, flying in the air and a, a kid pointing up and saying, "Mommy, I want to be a rock star." <laughs> Anyway, it's just real. It's real neat for me to like get 
just get exposure to, to guys like this, you know? Because mm-hmm. you just, I don't know, it makes your, starts my mind thinking in, in new circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've been doing a bit of, bit of acting and stuff, haven't you? Well, I would, Or you're trying to get started at least. I, I, I am in a way, I wouldn't mm-hmm. call it acting yet mm-hmm. because, because, uh, I mean, like, I've been, uh, I've been making music, like, at least trying to make music creatively for, for 20 years now, and I'm, I just feel like I'm just getting good, so, like, so, like, I wouldn't expect to kind of waltz right, waltz right into acting and be, be worth a damn, but, but I'm sort of getting my, getting my foot wet just because it's, it's kind of good for me, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a good way to learn to be focused. It's a good way to learn to be to be relaxed in front of cameras. And uh, these days, if you play music, uh, there's somebody poking a camera in your face all the time. So you might you might as well cool it. You know what I mean? Sure. So it's good for that. And the other thing I like is the is just the the storytelling aspect of it. It's just like a another way to communicate. Like like I wrote a book. Right. Just because I wanted to try to get some things across that that I couldn't quite get across in my songs, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like a, it's a world I'm kind of curious about, and and the other good thing about it is that uh, I suspect that um, just having like one more sort of one more realm of activity to to poke into keeps me from getting kind of depressed because I used to tend in the kind of like early 70s when the Stooges when Stooge music was running into a lot of resistance Mm -hmm. and and I was having a lot of trouble getting my point across I was I got caught up in the rock and roll glam sort of uh, groupie um, glorification scene out here in LA to the point where where all I thought about all day, all the time, were uh, guitars, uh, girls, uh, riffs, uh, I don't know, you know, it was like, it became, it sort of be just, uh, things began turning in on themselves. Right. And I found, you know, I found that my my thinking wasn't getting me anywhere. I was like a dog chasing my own tail. Mm -hmm. And the harder I would try to to do the right thing, the more I'd get messed up. Sometimes when you're involved in one thing too much, you're like pushing on, you know, you're pushing too hard after a while. I reckon so. Yeah. That's cool. I wanted to tell you that I really like the new album. I think, I think it's really good. I've been listening to it a lot. Um, one thing that I noticed about it is that um, it, it's more of a, a return, I don't want to say return to basics, but, you know, it's uh, you get it's a lot more rocking than uh, hard and stuff than the, uh, like the last record? It definitely is, and uh, one reason it would be more basic is that I had a, well, two reasons. One reason is just real simple, is that I went out and toured, like, I did about 100 gigs after after Blah 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 came out. It was the longest tour I'd ever done. It was about almost 10 months. And I, as the tuber went on, I started throwing in some of my most simple songs, and a lot of the ones I'd written myself, and people just really liked them, you know? And I just noticed this, and I went, well, hey, wait a minute, you know? Finally, uh, finally people are bopping up and down, I want to be your dog, you mm-hmm. know? Which, which uh, encountered a lot of resistance 20 years ago, so God, yeah. that made me hopeful. And then the other thing was that I, I felt, I had ambivalent feelings uh, 
putting my name on albums where the where there was always such a large contribution by some co-writer. Right. Um, and particularly when I work with with Bowie, uh, who I'd, I'd work with him because I knew some good spark would fly, and I'd rather do something really interesting than be mediocre. But on the other hand, those the records I did with him are, are almost as much him as me. Right. And so I just wanted something that if it had my name on the front. When you reached inside, you got total Iggy. Mm -hmm. So I decided that it had to be, to, to achieve that, that the music had to be, at, at least, at least in a, in the majority of it, something that actually came from my own hands, my own riffs on guitar, mm -hmm. uh, my own vocal lines, and uh, that, that it would mean that the way I would have to work would be to make full uh, four-track demos of everything by myself first. Right. Before, I, before I got involved with a band or a, or an ace guitarist or whatever. Sure. And that's the way I went about this album. Mm -hmm. The stuff I wrote with Steve was mostly done at the last minute because he's really good to record that way. Right. He's he's one of those players that if you get him relaxed and inspired, he can just he can just come up with a, a whimsical idea and you can you can get a really good track out of it in three mm -hmm. or four hours. Right. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure all this past work, kind of best work, kind of shows that too. I'm sure the Sex Pistols stuff, for instance, wasn't belabored over for months or anything like that. Yeah, especially the stuff. Uh, some of their some of their stuff, I think, was more Matlock's thing. But some of the real basic, the stuff of theirs, that the thrust in that band was coming from Steve's work. I think. Mm -hmm. By the way, what what's what's happened with Glenn Matlock? I saw him on that one tour with you. I I don't know what he's doing with himself right mm -hmm. now. I think. Uh, uh, last I saw of him, there was a picture in uh, some British paper. I think he was uh, at a like a Sex Pistols memorabilia reunion or something. Well, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, getting back to the record, one thing I I want to go into is um, do you think uh, like I read all the uh, a lot of the articles you wrote before uh, blah blah blah, and you were talking about wanting to make a big record, you know, a commercial record, whatever like that. In retrospect, do you think you tried too hard? On blah, blah, blah? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very astute question. Um, that's a possibility. I wonder about that myself. What, what I didn't want to happen at that time, uh, at that time I was, I'd been doing a little work before I recorded blah, blah, blah with Steve Jones some demos mm -hmm. out here, and we'd, we'd demoed about 12 or 13 things. The best two of those things um, uh, were Winners and Losers and Cry for Love, which both ended up on blah, blah, blah. Right. There was some other stuff that it, it showed promise, but it would have, it, it was, uh, I just had the feeling it was a year or two away from being really sort of uh, really focused. I wasn't sure it would make it would make an impact, and uh, I really at the I would have preferred if at the time if I could have made a great rock record uh, with a kind of a simple stance, more like what I did now. I would have preferred to have done that, but I didn't feel I was ready because I didn't I didn't really have a a full band of good friends. I had Steve, mm -hmm. but that was it, and uh, I wasn't quite. I wasn't quite uh, on my feet yet in uh, in the business world. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of aspects of that that, that weren't together, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't too confident that if I had if 
I had gone ahead and uh, signed with with uh, you know some LA record company, mm-hmm. uh, and and then made my record under their auspices. Mm-hmm. I probably would have gotten a, a real cruddy deal, and I probably would have been totally under their thumb, and they would have felt free to to fuck around with me during the recording process. Sure. And I was I was very wary of that. Whereas working with David, um, I knew exactly what I was getting into. Sure. You know, I knew I knew that there would be uh, there would be disagreements, but I also I also have a, a respect for him mm-hmm. artistically, and uh, I I liked the idea that working with him that we could we could finish the thing and uh, then present it to a company. That was that really appealed to me. Right. So I decided to go that way and uh, kind of make sure. Mm-hmm. You know, but it, I may not have had to. You just, you, you really can't call these things, you know? Sure, yeah, it's really hard to. Um, yeah. Sometimes also you're so close to it. That, that's know. what happens. Yeah. But on the other hand, I have no, I mean, I don't have any, um, I'm not embarrassed of that record. No, sure. At all. I think there's, I think there's a lot of value on that record. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that, I think that this one is, um, it's 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 better listening for me. Put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I what time I got a call from my mom saying she saw you on a, a morning talk show. Uh, Mother? Yeah, yeah. About uh, I guess about a year ago or, or whatever for blah blah blah, and uh, you made a comment about that you want to make music that dentists would like or something like that. Oh no! Yeah. No, kind of what I said was I, I I've got I've got a dentist who's a really nice guy. Uh huh. And uh, and he's not like uh, you know his his knowledge of of contemporary music kind of like begins and ends with I don't know Paul Simon you know right. what I mean? sure and you know he's like he he keeps three or four albums around the office uh, to put to to uh, put in cassettes uh, and then you can you can wear headphones while he drills on you <laughs> <laughs> wow you know <laughs> like, great. That's like his involvement with the music scene. And so what I I just thought it was really funny and kind of what I what I was trying to say was uh, I would like to be able to write a song or or to do something with music that would reach out so far that that even he would notice it and understand it. Right. I mean that that would be okay. I don't cuz I I don't know, I just don't believe that something I mean it's nice to do something that's really arcane and uh you know, forbidden fruit and stuff, but it's but the other direction is also tempting. Right. You know. Definitely. Yeah. I could see that. Um, one thing I like too with the new album, I like the title Instinct. Um, you know, to me, it's say it's up. You know, even like the title track with their the thing about uh, instinct keep you running through the grin and shadows, stuff like that. Um, you know, I guess I guess you've really had to rely on instinct to survive and all that kind of stuff. Well, and also in my. Uh, that's usually my best my best uh, moves have come about that way, mm-hmm. and I usually I usually work best when I follow my nose. The the way that title came about was uh, was one day uh, sitting with the four track machine and my guitar. Uh, I was discouraged because for a couple weeks my I was I've been writing every day for a couple of months, um, mm-hmm. starting work on on this album and. Uh, and the last couple of weeks hadn't gone very well, and the, the stuff I'd been writing was it was starting to sound uh, a little formalized. Mm-hmm. And so 
I decided, I actually said to myself, okay, now today, instead of first uh, diddling around on the guitar until I come up with something I think is good, and then figuring out, okay, now I'll give it this change, and then here will be the bridge, and then we'll go to a chorus and la-di-da, mm -hmm. and, and then tape it. Instead, just, just cool it, man. Just take your finger, reach out, press that play and record button, and then just pick up your guitar and follow your instinct. Mm -hmm. And and I did so. And the first thing that, that my hands did, I, they settled on E, and they just went... The da, which was the G, that was what justified the E. And and then and then they went through. My hands went right through that. My hands created that B change, and they created a they created a chorus which was very similar to to what finally became the chords of the chorus on the song. So in other words. Most of the most of the rhythm track of that song was just literally created uh, entirely instinctively in the space of four minutes. Wow! And so and so I was real hyped up about it. As soon as I recorded it, I knew it was good, mm -hmm. and I just couldn't stop playing it for days. And I thought I just thought you know I'm really glad I did that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I just thought I'm going to call this song Instinct. And and as the as the work, I mean I worked another six months writing writing the album but but out of all those months of work the one the one sort of crucial moment that stuck out in my mind was that moment when I decided to just sort of drop my pretenses and and just let let fly and see what came out sure so that's kind of what that was about that's cool um my favorite song on the album is probably Cold Metal and I was going to say um you know that that song kind of like explains you great you know you're kind of the king of cold metal or whatever I'm from that background, yeah. and, uh, and I was thinking, when I wrote it, I was thinking about uh, the, the vast difference between, between the, the life I, I lead and the kind of music I make be, because of the environment I'm from and uh, what might have been if I was born, like, uh, I don't know, in the backwaters of Brazil or something, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because that's, that's the other kind of music I love equally to rock is, for lack of a better word, I call it uh, remote ethnicity. Right. You know, I like Bedouin music or uh, Aymara Indian music from Bolivia, mm -hmm. uh, things like that, you know, Pipes of Pan, uh, all that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, sort of in everything in the middle kind of is strange, weird for me. But uh, I, you know, I sort of, and I was just thinking about, uh, you know, the way most people's homes today are made out of the same components that build the Holiday Inns and the McDonald's and the bank, and it's all made out of the same stuff, you know. And I started thinking about the, the skeletal uh, the skeletal implications of, of this building material right. and how we, how we uh, depend on it and, uh, and how we are also being consumed by it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's something to write about. That's cool. You mentioned all that ethnic music, I was going to say, and all those weird instruments. I mean, that kind of almost, I don't know if that has any reflection on, like, with the early Stooges, with the homemade instruments and all that it, kind of stuff. It did, yeah. Uh, basically, uh, basically, we we reverted pretty quickly to the to the basic rock instruments, because that was what was na natural to us, mm -hmm. you know, um, sort of the same way that I was, when I was in my teens, uh, 
I sort of apprenticed with blues musicians in Chicago, mm -hmm. and that was kind of a popular fad then for young collegians to um, to kind of kind of lionize these old blues guys. Mm -hmm. But once I actually hung out with them, the one thing that that uh, the one impression, strongest impression I got from that experience was that I'm I'm not 50, I'm not black, I'm not illiterate, <laughs> you know. And, and if I have any blues, they're of a much different nature than these guys. So I should do my own thing, you know. Right. But I did, I did, I do like the idea of experimenting, just to try to. I just wanted to try to find my own ground. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot to that. Um, another thing I want to go into was. Um, your first album came out in August 60 Died, which was the same time as Woodstock. And um, yeah. I was going to say, you must have been like every hippie's worst nightmare, you know? Yeah, that. I was. <laughs> it's true. Um, there, was, there was a big, not, not only the hippies, but the, the radio establishment at that time was basically what they were pitching was a hippie ethic on right. the radio and listen, you know, listen to station W so-and-so, the peace and love and, and bright beads oriented music station, you know, right. and, uh, it was common for program directors uh, to get up and give me the finger in the middle of my shows or storm out angrily or break my records on the air, uh, you know, that sort of thing. That, that was real common. Mm -hmm. And uh, not just program directors either, but I didn't care because because there were a lot of kids around at that time who really just wanted to rock and they weren't buying that stuff in the first place. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And, and they were the ones they kind of started to become Stooges fans mm -hmm. and supported us. You know, basically, my early supporters were just uh, they were kind of high school age kids or or college dropouts. Um, or kids who just uh, didn't go to college, and they mostly wore Levi's in some sort of a tattered state, and uh, tennis shoes, or maybe one pair of boots that they owned, and uh, a collection of T-shirts. Mm -hmm. Male or female, that would pretty much sum up my my fan, you know. Mm -hmm. And then they would wear like a flannel shirt if it was cold, <laughs> like me. It's the same way, you know. Sure. Still, I still kind of am that, am that way, you know. Mm -hmm. When I just want to be really relaxed. Yeah, it's amazing to think about the dichotomy of like, um, I guess around that time, like the urban cities, like Detroit and New York, you had all these bands who were uh, totally the antithesis of the peace and love thing. Like, you know, you were Stooges or MC5 come to first notice, you know, or something like that. I mean, it was so possibly the opposite end, you know, it was, it was you know, it was totally the opposite extreme and all that. Yeah. I have a feeling, you know, I think, I think like the peace and love Move the the love movement in uh, the late '60s in music probably was uh, probably was over uh, over amplified mm -hmm. uh, in the media beyond what was really there um, by the sort of the twin motives of of industry investment mm -hmm. in that sound. In other words, once they had one or two stars who were into like the San Francisco sound or something. Then they then they all had to jump on the bandwagon, you know. In other words, if uh, if Warner Brothers had uh, I don't know Big Brother and the Holding Company, then Electra would have to have Love, and then CBS would have to get their their uh, you know Flower Power band or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that encouraged I think more bands to to jump on that bandwagon than than they would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. 
And the other thing was probably just uh, all the drugs that were going around. Right. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, basically because like uh, the kind of things that people were taking then were tend to make you sort of feel wishy-washy and, you know, uh, over-loving, I think. Right. I like that. That's cool. Um, I'm sure you've been asked this, uh, you know, a couple times before, but um, talking about all this um, resistance to... Uh, uh, a lot of the stuff you were doing. Now, what do you attribute facts to why Stooge music never made it big? What happened? I know, it's a funny, uh, it does, uh, probably was a, a combination of factors. Um, and, it, and it did make it big later in the, in the different aspects of the music we were playing, I think formed the foundation of whole genres later on. I mean, I hear a lot of I hear a lot of similarities between uh, Give Me Some Skin and I Gotta Write and thrash music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really hear, it. I, I don't hear roots of that kind of music going back farther than those two tracks of ours. Right, definitely. If, if there's anything earlier, tell me about it. Cause I don't know where it is. And, uh, and then in the more, in the more medium tempo, like, uh, like simple rock or classic punk type of music, whatever you want to call it, like, I think, I think a lot of that had its roots like right around No Fun and I Want to Be Your Dog. Mm-hmm. Although although I got a lot of that from Velvet Underground. Mm-hmm. You know. Sure. Uh, but I think, I think that a lot of it had to do with the fact that the beats, the beats we were playing and the way we presented our chord patterns and the arrangements of our music were very fresh and new. And they were simplified in a way that people had never heard before. Mm-hmm. And generally, in in music, which which I think is the the most uh, reactionary of all the media, mm-hmm. um, all the art forms, I think people will resist whatever's new. And uh, when we were starting out, you know, like popular band would be like ten years after that right. played just these hideous, hideous butcheries of so-called blues. And uh, audiences would sit paying rapt attention to this crap, thinking it was good, you know. Sure. Um, I think people had a kind of a, a textbook attitude toward music at the time, and, uh, you know, you were, it was supposed to be held in high reverence and everything, often for the wrong reasons. And uh, I think they had trouble respecting us or, or uh, appreciating what was good about mm-hmm. our band. And then, uh, then the there were marketing problems with the record company didn't couldn't figure out uh, uh, where to place us so they would try like for a few months they would they would put, get me uh, on the cover of 16 right. and if they didn't think that was working they were going to make us a sort of a college uh, oriented act right. and really what we were was just a we were just a sort of a good little lowbrow rock and roll band mm-hmm. with some interesting lyrics that's what I thought of us as anyway mm-hmm. And uh, then the other thing in the final analysis too, uh, when we when we got flack from the industry, uh, we kind of folded under under that kind of pressure. Right. And uh, our our personal habits didn't help. Sure. Um, another thing is that you were. <laughs> <laughs> I'm real proud of it, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you were, you know, I mean, a prototype, you know, for a lot of that. You know, I mean, in a uh, in a good way, and I didn't mean it like that. But no, I'm um, glad about that. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, one thing is that you were also the first like rock artist to show um, that much, you know, nihilism and bodily disregard. Um, what do you think about people who are influenced by you and do the same kind of stuff today? I mean, I, you know, not as extreme, but you know what I'm saying. Who? What do, what do you What do you think when you look at someone who you know is copping a lot from what you did? And I don't mean it like I don't mean like stealing. Or I what think it, Antonin Artaud and the Marquis de Sade would be very happy <laughs> because I was influenced by them. You know. <laughs> I mean, I was even influenced by the pharaohs. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to read about the pharaohs and, and what they get into, and uh, so I think it's you know it's just like being part of a line. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Howling, howling wolf mm-hmm. uh, had had very dark overtones. Definitely in his presentation. That's some pretty evil was, stuff. Yeah, I was real influenced by wolf. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, some of these things sound wordy, but you know, I just had to write about this right. conversationally. I was going to say, you know, it's kind of like you know a huge injustice that you've never had like a major hit that that you've done. And uh, do you feel trapped by this like punk kind of art ghetto that actually a scene that you actually kind of like created in the first place, right? No, I don't feel. Uh, I'm just uh, not feeling trapped at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm real determined uh, to get my point across and. Uh, and uh, real, uh, I feel real good about the music I'm making right now, and uh, I'm sure that people who hear it are going to like it. Mm-hmm. I'm real sure about that. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, you know, we're talking about the over-the-top style. I was going to go, um, how hard was it or is it to live up to a reputation, and is there still a stigma about it today? Do you... People still expect you to do certain things, and you know, I mean, and that kind of stuff. Well, I think that it would be it would be somewhere between hard and impossible to to live up to you know to whatever that reputation is. If I if I sort of let that sort of thing come at me in my daily life, mm-hmm. so what I do is just avoid the issue. <laughs> to be honest with you, um, I, I keep to myself uh, a lot. Or at least try to keep away from uh, from situations where where those where those sort of elements would come into play, mm-hmm. um, because I think that's ultimately destructive and repetitious. Yeah. So I just stay out of there. Yes. <laughs> you know, to try to hang out with people who have uh, who have more realistic expectations or who have none none at all, who maybe don't know much about me. Because I would think that that would be like the ultimate drag. Yeah, it sure would. <laughs> it, sure, it sure can be, you know. To learn how to avoid it, you know, you learn, you get nimble. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, another thing I wanted to go into was um, one sign of anyone with cult status is uh, like all the bootlegs and stuff like that. And obviously there's been a lot on you. Have you listened to any of them? Do you like any of them? Or do you hate all of them? Because obviously you don't make money on them. I hate uh, about half of them, and I, I really like about the other half. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm always interested in the artwork. <laughs> uh-huh. That fascinates me, you know, because some of the artwork is just great. And uh, some of the stuff that comes out of bootlegs really good, and some of it's really bad. It's, I guess it's potluck. You know? um, it doesn't bother me to be bootlegged. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I was just, I was just wondering, you know, because some people like it, you know. But, I mean, I, as I said, I think that's the ultimate sign of um, you know fandom or, or you know cult sure, status because you're not, never going to make that much money on a bootleg you know I mean I guess you can but I mean some people have I guess but 
I can't really, you know, usually it comes from something different unless you're selling Bruce Springsteen bootlegs or something like that. I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not real focused on it, put it that way, mm-hmm. you know. It's not a big thing in my life, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, oh, I was over at uh, Daniel Ray's house and I got to hear that new Circus of Power record. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you recently wrote a song for them. I wrote it for myself mm-hmm. and decided not to record it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, Dan called me up and said, you know, asked me if I had any songs that they could do. I'd heard a tape of them earlier, and I thought they could probably do justice to, to the crazy. Mm-hmm. So uh, I gave it gave it to them. Because mm-hmm. yeah, my well, I guess that answers my question. Because I was going to say, is, is this the first time that a band's ever recorded one of your songs before you put well, it up? Uh huh. Yeah, it is. I I kind of like that, you know. Mhm. That's cool. Yeah, because I mean, I, I really like the way that turned out. Actually, that's cool. So you've been doing a lot of uh, writing and stuff like that. You play playing a lot of guitar and all that kind of stuff. Tons of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I really enjoyed it. It's been a, it's been a good time. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got uh, sort of these big shopping bags full of tapes. And, <laughs> you know, that's great. That's cool. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was, um, what's your favorite cover song of one of your songs? What's your least favorite? Uh, like, have you maybe have you heard Joan Jett's "I Want to Be Your Dog"? Or? I like that. I like the. Uh, I, I like her. That's the first one that comes to mind because I like the way she does the lick. Uh huh. On my riff, she put a little lick on the E chord. Uh huh. It's like. It's really nice. She's a. I think she's a real good rhythm guitarist. Mm-hmm. She's sort of right up there with, with maybe, for me, one of the top ten rhythm rockers in America as far as her guitar playing. Mm-hmm. You know, I like her guitar playing a lot. She is really good. I think so. Yeah, I think she's... She was great. She was a great uh, player when she was in The Runaways. Yeah, that was a really good band. She's a hot little guitar player. <laughs> That's great. I don't know what my least favorite would be. I just, uh, I'd stay away from that mm-hmm. topic, you know. Yeah, definitely, I could see that. Um, at least, this is my point. I wanted to get into something. I was going to say, arguably, um, I thought the Stooges, were of all this stuff, was was at their best with um, James Williamson, if you ask me, just a personal thing. And uh, I was going to say, um, you know, you talk about how you're now more in control of your business and your life and all that kind of stuff. Is it true that he was actually fired by your manager and stuff like that at that time? And, well, and how would that ever... Could anything like that ever happen again? You know what I'm saying? At one point, he was because uh, we were both uh, we were both in a in a very bad situation, and both of us, frankly, were fucking up bad and sure. fucking up bad and deserved it. <laughs> but then so was I. You mm-hmm. know, so uh, no, nothing like that could happen again. And and yes, uh, working with him was one of the high points of uh, of my music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely recognize that. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, like, Kill City was like a transition LP. I mean, I would look at it like that. I don't know if that's an accurate way of looking at it from Stooges to Solo. Well, I look at it a little different. It, it was, tell you what it was for me, it was um, a desperate attempt to keep on making music and to put something out even though I had nowhere to live no money, uh, no standing band, and no record contracts. 
but uh, I just I still was determined to get a record out, so I wrote that in James Williamson's living room, uh, just singing acoustically while he used a pig nose amp, and I recorded it on weekend leave from uh, the Neuropsychiatric Institute here. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at, done at the lowest point of my life, and done with the fewest resources that you can imagine. And when I hear it today, I'm so damn proud of that album because it's done with clarity. The arrangements are good. The the words, the words, the sum total of words on that album give a what I think is a great picture of what it was like to live in L.A. at that time if you had a lot of soul and no money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just I'm really proud of that work, mm-hmm. especially because of the conditions it was made under. Yeah, uh, it was. It was the last sort of pure rock album I was going to make uh, for some time. Mm-hmm. By the way, what, whatever became of Williamson? Uh, he's somewhere in Northern California working in the aerospace industry. Wow. Um, I've heard that uh, Jim Morrison was your idol, your main influence. And I want to say, is that, well, first of all, should I, should I go with that, with that premise? No, that's not a good, that's okay. not a good premise. He okay. was... He was a huge influence on me, but mm-hmm. uh, my my primary initial influence uh, were Jagger Richards, mm-hmm. the two the two Rolling Stones. Then from them, I quickly uh, looking down the looking down the writing credits on their albums. Right. I began listening to Otis Redding, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Bo Diddley, Don Covey, all their influences, mm-hmm. and started checking out all these people. Right. And those became my prime influences, Chuck Berry especially. Uh, there's so much Chuck Berry in my writing, it's not funny. Yeah, I definitely think and, so. Uh, and then um, then Morrison, you know, the, the Doors came along much later than the Stones. Mm-hmm. Morrison was about a third phase for me. Uh, Bob Dylan was also a huge one for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, then through Bob Dylan, the same thing, I started checking out, well, how is this... Basically, I was like a young guy in high school, and I was excited. Boy, I'd love to, I'd love to make music my whole life and do something really creative with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And this Dylan guy, how the hell is he writing that stuff? Mm-hmm. So I started looking back at uh, Scottish ballads, and right. I started listening to Woody Guthrie. And uh, then from there, I got to, I got started listening to Hank Williams, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the Doors were a big third phase. Mm-hmm. For me, he was real huge influence, but but uh, but so were the others. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Well, one thing I was going to go in, you know, if I go in, into that a little bit was um, just about Morrison a little bit. I was going to say there are some, you know, some obvious parallels there. Um, I got a, a, a lot of uh, I've used I've used a lot of similar vocal lines, mm-hmm. and I'm um, a baritone. Mm-hmm. I liked the way he was the first first singer to kind of sing rock in a, in a natural baritone voice mm-hmm. and his poetry the idea of wedding uh, poetry to to hard music was interested me yeah you know it's it's so wild that he gets um, at this point uh, I guess because of all the FM airplay and all that it's like he, he was considered kind of like a, a main thought of like people now probably think of him as a mainstream artist when in fact you know it was so yeah. far from the truth well, he was, uh, the thing is, he was, although the ideas may have, may have had a lot of avant-garde in them, ultimately, I think a 
guy like that is a mainstream artist simply because his execution is so good. Uh-huh. That's the difference between that's the difference between you know really making it in the really real world or just being a critic's favorite. Mm-hmm. It's like he could he could not only he could not he not only had the intent to do the right thing he had the ability mm-hmm. and the guy could sing like an angel and captivate you. Right, it's that simple. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think I think it was probably real hard work for him getting there, and uh, I think it put him under a lot of pressure, and I think that's probably what led to burnout. Yeah, you know, uh, it was it's very intense trying to trying to create at that level. Yeah, yeah, you've been through that. Yeah, I probably should wind up pretty soon. Okay, um, a few more things I want to go into. Okay. Um, I saw something in the paper today about, uh, yesterday, about you being in a new movie with Tracy Lords. <laughs> yeah, I read that myself. Is that, is that, there's nothing to that? Well, it's, uh... Is that the Sam Raimi stuff? There's a little bit to it. There's a, there's a script, there's a script called Zombie Cop, and, uh, and I, I really see something in about half of it. Uh-huh. So I've been talking to some of the people involved, and that's as far as we've gotten. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, a lot's made of your relationship with Bowie by critic, like a lot of critics talk about how he saved your career and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of truth to it. I was going to say, but to me, it seems like he gained a lot from the association as well. I mean, he picked up a lot of your good points too. And, uh, how much is this association? Is it still, is it still a lot of help or is it a hindrance sometime? You went in before, before you were talking about how you want to do it. You want to make sure that this new record was totally yours, you know, and stuff like that. Um, well, I didn't have any problem uh, doing my own record, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, because you can hear it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, no, I think I think I've benefited uh, a great deal from knowing him, and uh, and whether whether or not you're a fan of his musical style, um, I can tell you the guy has tremendous character, mm-hmm. and. Um, He's a tremendously effective worker, mm-hmm. and were it not for the things I've learned from him, I wouldn't have the tools to defend myself in in this modern and horrible world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, yeah. That's that's about how I can sum up. Uh, you know, that's cool. What what he's what he's meant to me in professional terms. Right. Uh, personal is something else. Uh, you know, we have a friendship and. You know that I don't think that needs further comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I could definitely see that. Um, what was I going to say is, you know, I'm trying to make a few final points here. Was, um, you know, obviously you've been so far ahead of your time in so many things. Uh, you know, like I got to the party early. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it feels sometimes. That's cool. Where is everybody? You know? <laughs> really. <laughs> um, I don't want to. I want to try to make this out right, but in retrospect, was it worth it? I mean, you've obviously taken a lot of shit all your life. That's a good question. <laughs> yes, it was really worth it, and I'm really delighted about the whole thing. And I don't, I don't remember the painfulness of it as much as I just look at this guy and he's like a cartoon character to me. But I realize he's me, and I'm really glad he's me. <laughs> and I, it's harder to remember how much it hurt than the glory of what I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah, so it was worth it. That's great. Because I'm, 
because uh, it's. I think it's good to be proud of what you've done with your time. Mm-hmm. Since time is the one thing that that uh, you know nobody can sort of get more of. Mm-hmm. It's not like money. You know, I mean, your your time is all you've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I feel anyway. So you know, ultimately, I want to be proud of what I did with it.